Welcome back to The Big Dig, your top CRE podcast presented by BuildUp in Nayop, Massachusetts, the Commercial Real Estate Development Association. Okay, Megan Doherty here with BuildUp. Very excited uh, for today's episode of The Big Dig. We are going to be talking about Seven Inc. and co-living. So let's meet our guests. Ted? I'm Ted Tai. I'm the managing partner of National Development, and I've been involved in real estate projects around Boston for about 35 years, and we are the developers of Inkblock. Taylor? Hi, Taylor Kane, director of the Mayor's Housing Innovation Lab. We explore different ways of developing housing in the city of Boston. John? I'm John Martin with Elkis Manfredi Architects. We are the architects of the Inc. 7 and also all six other buildings at Inkblock. Exciting. And I also have Kevin with me to provide some expert market stats when we need those. Kevin, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Kevin Caulfield. I'm managing director at Compass um, in the Back Bay. We do residential sales, leasing, and um, some new development. So, Seven Inc. is the seventh and final building in the game changing ink block. So, let's start with a brief history of the full project and talk about how you guys have dramatically changed the South End. So I I would tell you, Megan, that Inkblock has probably been the most fun, interesting, and complex project that I've been involved with in in, in my years in real estate. And we got involved in the project when we purchased it back in 2006. It was the former headquarters of the Boston Herald, and so the Herald was printed there, editorial offices were there, distribution was in the building. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that when we first got involved with the building, there were uh, tumbleweeds rolling down Harrison Avenue. So I have to interject because I used to manage a building two blocks from there in 2006 and 2007, and that is definitely true. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, but the area has a really interesting history. Um, You know, the south end of Boston was actually filled from harbor land back in the uh, mid-19th century, and it developed as a really interesting mixed-use area. Um, It had all sorts of people who lived there. Um, It was uh, largely an immigrant population, Um, But it was a mixed-use community as we know it today. It had lots of retail activity on the first floors, uh, theaters, uh, schools, and it remained that way until urban renewal in the early 1950s basically demolished the whole neighborhood. The idea was to make progress in Boston. They called it the New Boston through industrial development. Unfortunately, that industrial development was not too sexy, and it included the Herald and Quinzani's Bakery and Electrical Warehouse and and other sorts of things that were kind of mundane, one- and two-story, for the most part, industrial uses. That's how we found it when we got involved in the the area. Um, There was a lot of uh, homeless activity. There was a lot of crime activity because there just weren't people on the streets. So... When we came in and said, let's, uh, let's do a sale lease back with the Herald and let's think about how we can really influence the area and its future, uh, it was a pretty bold bet and one that, frankly, a lot of people didn't believe in. When we 
started to say, hey, we can do some high-end retail and some luxury housing in this neighborhood, I, I think most people considered that a pretty big stretch. So that's how we started, and the Herald um, eventually did move out of the building, and we looked at it with uh, help from John and, and others at Elkis Manfredi and said, you know, you just can't approach this thing and just tear it down and build a building. That wouldn't work. You have to establish a whole neighborhood, a whole sense of place. So continuing kind of our big bet, we built four buildings at the same time. We established a streetscape. We took six-foot sidewalks and made them 30-foot sidewalks. And we really carefully cultivated a group of retailers and restaurants to create activity, energy, eyes on the street. We called it kind of 18-hour you know, activity at the time, Whole Foods being a big piece of that, but also a group of really uh, carefully thought through restaurants that we worked closely with the community on. And Ted, um, I think you might have left out one chapter in there that I distinctly remember, and that was after the agreement in 2006, going into 2007, 2008, I think we all had much bigger ambitions, bigger meaning taller uh, ambitions for the site. I remember as architects doing schemes that um, had tall towers on that site. Well, we actually looked at the FBI headquarters at one point. That was the tallest tower that we looked right. at. And then there was the whole initiative to um, the Harrison-Albany Corridor initiative to rezone it for the city. And that recession that we all lived through gave us a chance to rethink how to make a great neighborhood as opposed mm -hmm. to just building to maximum density. Right. Or to reapportion the density, right? Yeah, and we worked, you know, the, the Harrison-Albany Corridor study, I always say, which was done by the, the, the BRA at the time, now the BPDA, was actually one of the really good examples of urban planning initiated by a city. So it, it involved the city, it involved the community groups, and it involved the businesses and landowners as well. So what came out of that was something that was really good. And I think what we did, John, if you said, what's our concept we, we hearkened back to the New York streets that were there before That's with some right. of the planning on the ground. Uh, and we also did something that related to the pedestrian and the, and the, and the person on the ground. So it, it had character, it had scale, and that, I think, is part of what makes it so successful. So this will be the first major co-living project in Boston. So how did you decide this was the right time to bring this here and Taylor, if you could also comment on, from the city's perspective, your thoughts on co-living and how this can help the, you know, Boston's housing grow. So I guess I'll start and hand it off to Taylor. Um, so we had built six buildings, and part of creating a place like Ink Block is, is, is having diversity amongst your uses. So we had re retail on the ground floor. We had three buildings that were apartments. We had two buildings that were condominiums. We had one building that's a hotel. And we kind of said, what's, what's next? And what can we do that's different? What can we do that's additive to this community that we've created? And, you know, Mir Walsh put out his call for new housing units in the city, a very aggressive call for new housing. And I think one of the themes that he expressed was 
it doesn't all have to be the same. It doesn't all have to be apartments. It doesn't all have to be condominiums. What else can you do? Can you do dormitories? Can you think of new creative ways? So this co-living movement started around the country. And frankly, Boston and we didn't really have a clue as to how to deal with it. And we started off, we went into, the, into City Hall and we had brought a bunch of people together and there were lots of things that were being thought about. Size of units, amount of common area, common space area. How do you deal with affordability and, um, and, and, and inclusion? So those were all tough issues that frankly this project kind of broke new ground on. We couldn't have done it if we hadn't been encouraged by the city and there hadn't been some flexibility and before your arrival Taylor yeah. but we that those were the things that we started talking about and I think this openness to new models or new ways of living um, has been so important in really gaining steam over the past few years in Boston as we think about the fact that we are in the midst of this moment where we're really grappling with the future of our city and what kind of city does Boston want to be, what types of way do people want to live in the city. So the lab has done a lot of work around compact living and so in some ways I see some connection between thinking more intentionally about how we're using space and how we're sharing space and co-living being a way of thinking about how we can share resources um, at least in this, in this residential scale. Um, so it's really exciting to kind of see a co-living project kind of be realized in Boston. Um, but I think from the city side, what we're trying to be thoughtful about is that we don't want to just create co-living environments that feel really insular, that feel as though they are just for the people that have the good fortune of being able to live there, um, but that truly successful examples of co-living create a space that feels permeable, that is um, allowing for interaction between both the residents of the building, but also the folks who live in the neighborhood in which that building is located. So that programming space being really important um, in terms of making sure it's a space that allows for this, this exchange, this uh, relationship between, between different spaces. And co-living is interesting because it's not new at all. Uh, we've been living together and sharing resources uh, for as long as human beings have been living together. Um, so co-living certainly has its roots in uh, SROs, in rooming houses, in boarding houses, and really being this space that allows folks who are perhaps coming to the city for the first time or who are hoping to move out of their parent space or just looking for a place to get a foothold in an urban environment, um, but not wanting to feel to feel isolated or alone, but having the space where you can help build a sense of community, um, where you can know you are living with folks who want to similarly figure out how to share resources together. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from co-living, both as this residential form, but also thinking about ways in which it can help us think about sharing outside of our housing as well. So you mentioned the design and community. So John, do you want to talk about the design of the project and what makes it unique as a co-living building? Sure. I think uh, as architects, clearly we have space requirements, programmatic requirements we have to meet. But as we got into this with national development, uh, as we toured precedent examples, it quickly emerged that it was far less about the number of square feet and far more about how you live. 
and the things that Taylor just mentioned about socialization, about being accepted by your immediate community, co-living really gave us an opportunity to explore that and and we are exploring it in all three dimensions uh, the amount of area in a bedroom the amount of area in a kitchen is far less important than how that space is used and we take advantage of compact living in terms of movable furniture we take advantage of compact living in terms of having a lot of things built in that can be adapted uh, we're trying to save space and and really remove barriers for living so I think the one thing that I really want to emphasize that differentiates co-living from perhaps small apartments in other apartment buildings that you can rent at Ink Block is this level of service, this kind of concierge level of uh, amenities and service and public space. The ratio of communal space in this building is so much higher than it is in a typical apartment building or even the other buildings at ink block and it, it's generous in other ink block buildings but in this building it's really a predominant feature the whole first and second floors are devoted to kind of socialized interactions between people that you get to know at a, at a deeper level than you would ever be able to in a conventional apartment or condominium building i think and i, I would just pick up on what both Taylor and John said, across our multifamily portfolio today, um, or even our senior housing portfolio, the number one thing, the number one driver today is community. It's living the way we used to live. That's what people are looking for. They want to connect with other people. They want to share resources with other people. And as we start to target more of a millennial population, they behave a little bit differently. They don't necessarily bring all their things with them so that having a place that is fully furnished or that has convenience uh, amenities is really important or having that uh, large amount of common area on a first floor, having some great garden outdoor space, having an incredible roof deck, those are all things that people are looking for. It's amazing when we go through ink block uh, how many apartments the ovens have never been turned on um, because um, if you go down to Whole Foods, there's close to 200 seats, and it almost serves as the, um, as, as the dining hall or cafeteria or common area space where you go in and just see. And it's, it's a real mix of people, but you just see people in there being part of that community. And obviously no one has moved in to Inc. 7 yet, but the precedents we all looked at, we were very surprised that it's not just the millennial demographic. It's not just people graduating from college. The stories we've heard, the, uh, the examples we've seen are military veterans returning back, older people moving out of single-family homes as singles and wanting to live in a more social atmosphere. So really the age and demographic profile is incredibly varied in all of the examples we look at and we anticipate the same thing happening, especially in this kind of what I call a linchpin neighborhood that's at a very important intersection in Boston of Chinatown, the South End, the Financial District. There's such a mixed demographic in the population. I think we'll see that in the building as well, and it'll be fantastic. Yeah, let's talk about kind of the unit layouts. And I think part of that question would be like, how is a co-living building maybe different than 
you know, just a, a building where they have three bedroom apartments and people have a roommate. Like, what's the what's the difference there? So maybe talk about first what is co living, and then what does the building look like? Which kind of two different questions. So co living is the opportunity to be in what could be a everything from a studio to a four bedroom apartment. But the difference is that basically you're renting by the bedroom. And your bedroom is a convertible space that is both your sleeping space and your piece of your living space. So we have, you know, beds that will fold up into the wall. We have tables that become desks or dining tables. But it's different in that, in that respect. But the service package is what's really important. So it is, in a way, all-inclusive living. So that when you move in, your unit is furnished. You're provided with weekly cleaning, with uh, soaps that get changed in your bathroom. But probably most importantly, with this really robust community atmosphere. So we have a full-time community programmer, in effect, who is uh, working with residents, connecting residents. We have a large co-working area, so many people will just be working out of the building. Laundry is common in the social uh, activity. We have a gaming room that's uh, part of the building. We have a common kitchen where people can come and collaborate and and, and, and cook together. And lots of smaller places. A lar- we have a large fitness center. We have an outdoor uh, area where people can barbecue. We have a roof deck where people can socialize. So a lot of the activity takes place out of your room and out of your apartment and more within the building, although the apartments are full. The other real difference uh, is that um, we provide uh, roommate matching. So you may come in and want a studio apartment, live by yourself, that's fine. But you may not. You may be uh, coming from a high-tech company in California and getting a job at, in the seaport and not knowing anybody and coming with your suitcases and say, please match me with some folks that you think might be compatible. Um, and we have a uh, working with Ollie, who is our uh, partner in this. We have something called, uh, ingeniously called Bed Vetter, which is a, uh, a system of trying to match you up with, uh, with, with a roommate or roommates, and you're able to live together in a group, in a group living setting. I'd love to talk to them about that. I bet there's some good stories from that. <laughs> there, there are, and uh, they will be the first to tell you yep. that it's an almost proprietary algorithm that they've mm-hmm. uh, designed to seek out true compatibility. It's not unlike dating apps, but it's for a whole different objective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about living compatibility, not romantic compatibility. And uh, you can tweak that algorithm, and, and they have demonstrably satisfied uh, disproportionate number of people by using this algorithm. Uh, So it it really does seem to work. I think from a space point of view, we thought about it as, as, again, just taking away the barriers to living. And we thought about as we move through our days, what part of my day do I want to be entirely in solitude and private? And what part of my day do I want to be with other people and what parts of the in-between do I mind sharing? And so if you take the traditional components of an apartment, clearly 
when I'm asleep, I do not want other people around. That's a, a very private activity. That's in my private bedroom. Similarly for hygiene, toileting, all of that. Most of the bathrooms in, in this co-living model are ensuite, connected directly to a, a single bedroom. Some are shared, but most are, are ensuite. Some are shared with two people. Uh, I don't think there's any example of sharing a, a bathroom with more than two. But then you know, I, I, I want to make sure my Cheerios are still there when I come there in the morning. So that needs to be semi-private. So that's a kitchen shared by two or three people. That's outside of my private unit, but it's, a, it's not shared with everybody. It's just shared with two or three people I trust. But the living room, when I'm watching the game or the opera, that's clearly a shared activity. And I can do that probably better with friends um, than I can in the privacy of my own room. Although if I wanted to watch something privately, I have a TV in my room. I have a video screen in my room. So it's just that kind of default subliminal thing as I move through my day. Is this activity a shared activity, a semi-public activity, or a private activity? And we tried to create space uh, no more space than is needed for any one of those activities. And if you think about your day, you'd be surprised how much of it is either already shared or could be shared and might be a better socialization model. How does the, uh, how does the pricing compare in, in this building versus the other residential rental options over in Ink Block? Good, good question. Um, you would not look at this building and say this is truly an affordable option. However, we worked really closely with the city to create the affordability required under IDP in the building, which I think is really important, so that 13% um, of the units within the building, of the bedrooms within the building actually, mm -hmm. will be truly affordable. For the market rate units, which is the majority of the building, we wanted to create some price differential between the standard multifamily apartments and these units. So with that proposition of you're getting furniture, you're getting free Wi-Fi and cable, you're getting all these additional community services, we still want to be lower than the, than the comparable apartment. So the typical answer is it would be two to $300 a month lower than a comparable apartment in the area and that's that's how it's being pegged so it's more service a little bit less realist personal real estate but a, a more moderately priced option um, going forward are the is the pricing based on the number of bedroom count within each unit that you of the co-living or is it same just no so it, it, it differs so if i get a studio or I get a one-bedroom unit, that is actually priced higher than if I took a bedroom and a four-bedroom unit. In a four-bedroom, it might be that I come in with three friends or it might be that I come in by myself, but I can actually rent at a good number based on that bedroom. And, you know, one of the questions we got asked a lot was, well, can I can people Airbnb this out? The answer is no, you can't. The typical lease is a year-long lease. Mm -hmm. um, there's a commitment to creating a real community there. And, uh, and no, we're not in the we, – we actually restrict – any subleasing by tenants, so you can't do that just the way you couldn't in any sure. of our other multifamily products. Thanks for listening. Megan Doherty here from buildup.com. Now a word from our sponsors. This episode of The Big Dig is brought to you by Elkis Manfredi, a full-service design firm providing architecture, master planning, 
urban design, interior architecture, historic preservation, space planning, programming, and experiential graphic design. Go to elkus-manfredi.com. That's E-L-K-U-S-M-A-N-F-R-E-D-I.com. Colocal is your source for best in-class co-living property management and development services. Their expert co-living management team will work with you to convert your multifamily property or to partner with you for ground-up opportunities. They maximize revenue through their tech-enabled co-living management platform. Learn more about this exciting trend in living at co-locale.com. That's co-locale.com or call them 508-686-6079. 508-686-6079. We are back talking about co-living and seven inc with ted ty taylor kane and john martin so let's talk about the future of the project i know i drove by and you guys had started or you probably even done by now because it was a small building demolishing the building that was on the site that little two-story thing so when will you be starting construction and when do you expect to be completed Well, demolition, as you saw, has started. There was one little building that uh, needed to be demolished. This is uh, probably the most difficult of the seven buildings in Inkblock to build because it's being built on a very busy corner of uh, Herald Street and Albany Street. So there's just not a whole lot of room there to maneuver. So we expect to start full building uh, really within the next couple of weeks. We're working now on some of the uh, stuff that you don't see, the the underground utilities and uh, the, the connections. And we actually have to build over an existing driveway. So you'll be able to continue to drive up through that building. And it, it, we have to raise a piece of the building two stories up in the air to be able to get under it. So we have a about uh, a little under a 24-month construction schedule, and that puts us a uh, little, little less than two years from now. Uh, we should be open, so summer of 2021. Very nice. Um, and you mentioned the site location, and John, one of the notes I had to ask you about was the since the site is kind of a focal point I would say there because you can see it from the highway and everything were there you know did you take that into consideration when you were designing the building sure I, I I referred to it earlier as a kind of linchpin or fulcrum site it is a very important corner in the city it's a very visible corner in the city as evidenced by the fact that in addition to that little two-story building there's also a billboard on the site that we'll be relocating but uh, in terms of how it how ink block functions all of the buildings at ink block turn out to have a very public face they want to make good streets as Ted has already alluded to they want want to restore that historic block pattern and this last corner I think the BPDA and the urban designers for the city always envisioned would have greater height the Albany Harrison corridor plan calls for greater height here and it was such a visible and important corner we wanted to to make the building appear as slender as we could as you came from the south or you came out of the city from the north. So it has kind of a wing or almost knife shape to it. Uh, It does come to a point at that corner and we tried to create as much transparency and visibility from the units to let daylight into the units but also to make the building fit into the 
kind of built landscape of that corner. So I think it's a very important site. It's appropriate to be taller there, and uh, we certainly took advantage. We created pretty much a vertical <coughs> building for, for that site. Taylor, I have one other question for you, too. You mentioned compact living. Could you just, it's, since it's kind of in the same plane of what we're talking about, could you just kind of talk about that for a little bit and inform everyone of what yeah. compact living is? Uh, yeah, so I will start by not just defining what compact living is, but really how we approached even having a conversation about mm -hmm. how folks want to live. Um, so we really want to think about the ways in which people are using their space and what do they need access to. So the lab has had a lot of conversations, but also creating spaces for people to experience small living. So we did a tour of what we called our YooHoo, an urban uh, housing unit, which was a very uh, physical manifestation of what compact living could look like. So we have um, about 600 square feet of space, um, which sounds really small but what will it feel like if you have big windows if you have furniture that can move around um, do we really need these rather large apartments or rather large houses or can we think about using our space more efficiently in a way that is more environmentally conscious environmentally friendly um, is catering to folks who are trying to think about living smaller both in terms of their space but also in terms of how they're uh, consuming so maybe I don't need a car if I have a smaller space that is more centrally located um, that is in easy access to uh, a grocery store or my work um, so we created these compact living guidelines to help um, folks who are interested in building different types of projects really have a framework that they can go to um, that is informed by how people could live in smaller spaces. So have it, again, windows are really important when you're thinking about smaller spaces because I think there is this concern of when you live small, it's a box and that's all that it is, that it is just a space to, to have a bed. Um, but that when there are windows, when there are movable furniture, when there are these shared common spaces, what you have is your space feels so much larger um, than just the, the bedroom itself. So those guidelines are readily available to be to be used by folks who where, are... Where do they find them? Yes, so uh, <laughs> if you go onto the City of Boston's website and use the search tool to just put in compact living guidelines, it will take you right to um, that book. Great. Yes. Thank you. Talk about, um, you just talked about compact living and, and then people that maybe don't have a need for car what about the people that do have cars is there parking associated yes, with the yes, building yes there is parking there there's a garage there are over a hundred spaces for bikes zero for cars yeah so john's john's being good john's being very cute that may be that may be a little hard to follow at home you really snuck the bikes in so but that's I, what i'm what i'm attacking is this mentality yeah. that that parking is exclusively for automobiles. And, and I think that, that goes to where do you build these things? You know, building them right in the middle of the action is where you need to build co-living. If it's in a neighborhood that is not really connected to retail, not really connected to public transportation or easy pedestrian access, I'm not sure that works. And I, I actually have had some concerns about a few things I've seen in the very early stages of being proposed. But as John said, 
we will have bike parking on site, convenient, covered, with a bike workshop in the building. We don't anticipate, and this is the trend that we're seeing everywhere, is fewer and fewer cars. People who live in the urban area don't need or want cars. If somebody has a car, we also have our uh, undergrounded ink block across the street. So there is the ability to rent a park, a covered parking space. It's covered by I-93, uh, <laughs> but it's a very, it's a great place to park uh, if someone does need a car. So we've we've covered it both ways. And you know, frankly, we thought a lot about how do you get dropped off by Uber or Lyft? What's the you know is there's bike sharing on site as well, and it's an easy walk to the city and the seaport, or to the red line and the orange line or the Silver Line, which are all nearby. That's what makes it a good place to live. Ted, you mentioned Ink Underground. I think from an urban design point of view, that's been a tremendously important link between South Boston and the South End. Uh, It's made walking under I-93 a pleasant experience. And uh, I think it's really opened up kind of one's perception. When you're at Ink Block, you have a perception of what your range is on foot. And Ink Underground has really opened that part of the South End to South Boston, and conversely, South Boston coming over to Whole Foods and take advantage of the restaurants and the kind of recreation, the sports, the lifestyle, uh, yoga, and spin studios that are at Ink Block. Yeah, for those who don't know what what Underground at Ink Block is, it is a project that we've done in collaboration with MassDOT, and it's a eight-acre area that is partially under the expressway that goes all the way over to Four Point Channel, and it does have uh, some parking spaces, but it also has an amazing art park that we've curated with two events, bringing artists from Boston and all over the country in. It has a performance area, a dog park, some areas just to sit and enjoy um, in, in, in the grass. But that was an area that uh, when we started Ink Block, I mean, it was, a, it was created by the Big Dig. It was an unsafe area. There were homeless people living there. There were a lot of drug activity in that area, and people didn't want to walk. And so by opening up this, uh, this park and creating pedestrian access through it, it's just it's connected the South End and South Boston in a way that people didn't imagine. So I think I'll ask one last question. Um, you're talking about the improvements to the South End. Why don't we all kind of, well, not me, but everyone else kind of give their thoughts on the future of the South End um, and, you know, how you continue to see it growing, you know, once Seven Inc. is done and on to, into the future as well. Ted? So Ink Block really was the... I think the catalyst of some amazing things that have happened in the area. Um, while we've done seven buildings, it's not just about us. And what's been really exciting is to see what's happened around us and currently how many cranes there are in the air. So we've got uh, 321 Harrison, which is uh, a Nordblom's project right across the street, a big office building that's being built. We have the uh, UDR project right across the street that's open with 400-plus apartments. Related Beale is building the Quinn, another big building with apartments and condos uh, right down the street. You know, another great project is the Davis Company building uh, 100 Shawmut. Um, and it continues all the way down the street. There's, there's, uh, there's actually more that's been built. There's been some infill. And, you know, it, it connects back into the Soa area and the charm of the South End 
So it just it's it's coming and it's connecting into South Boston and everything that's happening on that corridor, of which we're a big part. Just to to touch on that, we were a part of a project just over the the bridge at 14 West Broadway, which is kind of the gateway to South Boston. And I would say a large piece of the success of that project was the proximity to Ink Block, and we and we drew in not just your typical. South Boston buyer, we were able to draw in some empty nesters there because it was connected. The red line is there. They can walk to Whole Foods. They can walk to the restaurants. And they, you know, while they may have not found what they were looking for in the South End, we were able to give them the amenities and and what they were looking for with still, you know, like you said, just a walk over the bridge. And there, it, it really did do a nice job connecting the two neighborhoods. Yeah, the bridge was a wall, and now yes. it's a bridge. Yes, it's really changed. And and the, and you know, I think the gateway, or as you come over the bridge, that the all of the development in that area has be, uh, become more welcoming. I think as people come over the bridge too. One last question for you: You talked a lot about location being a big piece of doing the co-living there. Are there other areas in the city that you're that you're looking at to bring co-living to the neighborhood? Well, if there were, I don't think I would tell you right here. <laughs> um, but yes, there are. And I think there, you know, if you look at areas of the city with similar attributes, you know, good access to transportation, good population base, proximity to institutions, whether mm-hmm. they be medical or, ed- or, or educational, proximity to, um, to the areas where people work, those are all the good places. And sure. I don't think anyone should look at co-living or you know, smaller unit apartments. It's not the panacea for all of our housing ills. It's one piece of a big puzzle. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's unlimited depth to this market. I think it's just a very small piece of it that uh, we look to fill in. And Taylor, you know, even the units that you described, there's a whole range of project sizes and types and well, I wanted to go back to the future question yes. of yeah of the South End because I think that's a really interesting one and also a challenging one because the South End, as many other Boston neighborhoods are experiencing, this feeling of there being two neighborhoods that are being created or, or maybe even more than two depending on the neighborhood that you're thinking about. But this feeling that what is happening here is not for everyone so this this feeling of exclusion that is happening in some of our neighborhoods and so i think there is an opportunity for projects like this and as we think about the developments that are happening in other neighborhoods to look at them in a way in which they are really having the potential to maybe heal some long-standing wounds that are in these communities um, and create more opportunities for interaction for folks that are maybe coming to Boston for the first time and those who have been living in these neighborhoods for long periods of time um, so that we can start to to weave together our city in a way that feels as though we're increasingly uh, creating two different cities where though there are those who are able to afford really high-end apartments and those who are really struggling to stay in place. John, any final thoughts? Sure. Um, if you ask me what I think the future of the South End is, I would say it's technology-based. Um, technology has transformed every aspect of our life. It's transformed clearly the way we live. That whole bed better app, that algorithm, is technology-based, and it, and it provides a matching that helps us in our socialization. 
And so as technology is transforming or helping to transform the way we live, historically the South End has always been very, very residential. Its core, its original founding was uh, a place to live when you worked in Boston. And historically that's what, it is, what has happened. It's gone from worker housing to some very expensive uh, exclusive housing and and now we're hoping to return it to a more affordable price with this product but i think the future of the south end is blended ted alluded to a couple of office projects that are coming into the south end i think it won't be the scale of the financial district the tall buildings across the the mass pike but i think we will see kind of blended live-work office space beginning to take up some of these blocks in the South End. And this blended lifestyle that we have where we work from home and we live at work, uh, we're going to create an architecture that facilitates that blended way of living. And that's what you will see certainly at this end of the South End in the next five to ten years. Excellent point to end on. Uh, So thank you guys all so much for joining us here on The Big Dig. Thanks for listening to The Big Dig Podcast. For more information about real estate development, design, and construction, go to bldup.com. Get in the know. In the know, the only way to stay on top of all of the details that are impacting the future of your construction and real estate development business. Be one of the first 200 to get in the know. In the know helps customers analyze data and market intelligence that can help impact the future business development of your business. For more information about In the Know, you can go to bldup.com or email me, Noah Coughlin, N-O-A-H at bldup.com. Thanks for listening to the Big Dig Podcast. And if you like the podcast, please follow us at the iTunes Store, Spotify, or in SoundCloud.